0: I wish I could tell you everything is okay. I wish I could comfort you and tell you there is nothing to fear. But I can't. And if you are really being honest, that's not what you want. You want to be scared. You like being scared. So, join me, your elusive host, and I will tell you why you're haunted by so many monsters. Scary Stories is a bi-weekly podcast about the psychology of fear and the stories we use to explain it. So, take a seat and let me tell you about this thing that happened to a friend of a friend of a friend. Find it everywhere you listen to podcasts.
1: This podcast involves topics such as violence, sex, and mental illness. If this might disturb you or those around you, please reconsider. It's okay. Privacy and confidentiality have been protected, with personal information removed when possible. If you ever feel unsafe or suicidal, please call your local crisis center, emergency services, or national hotline. In the U.S., the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 800 273 8255. You matter. Hey, this is Rachel from We're All Mad Here, a podcast about mental health. What if you hated your sister as much as you loved her, to the point of attempted murder? What if she was the only one who understood the way you thought and spoke? What if everyone else, from peers to the mental health system, turned their back on you? What would happen? Are you sure you really want to know? This is Ignorance Was Bliss, with Kate and guest Moxie Labouche from Your Brain on Facts.
2: This is Moxie LaBouche, the host of Your Brain on Facts, a half-hour show of things you didn't know, things you thought you knew, and things you never knew you never knew. And I've invaded. Ignorance was bliss.
3: So that's, you know, the whole, like, here's the things you knew, and yet I'm saying it's better not to know. And so this is like a clash of forces of nature. And yet somehow
2: so compatible. Right? It's beautiful.
3: I don't know why we waited this long.
2: Well, that and most of my stuff is just goofy, ridiculous facts. I I work retail, and a uh, customer was digging through his his various pockets trying to find his money. He made a comment about kangaroos, and then I just, had, for whatever reason, just unloaded marsupial facts on him, and he kept he kept asking questions. So there's just more and more facts, and thank God there weren't any customers behind him because uh, there's no end, there's no bottom to this hole. <laughs> That's amazing. I have, you know, I I I used to be.
3: In good command of of facts, I used to be good at trivia, but now I get stuck on
2: words. So I'll know the answer, but I can't get the word out. Well, my problem is that I have jammed all of this stuff into my brain, but then between uh, the ADD and various medications I've been on and having been lightly struck by lightning one time, none of it's where I left it. So my brain is basically an encyclopedia with all the pages torn out and strewn across the room with a squirrel running around on them.
3: I understand that exactly, like I really do. I yeah. <laughs> I follow. I I think getting struck by lightning is about the closest natural world phenomenon to having epilepsy. Um, and so I, I like I didn't have epilepsy until I was thirty eight, and so I've I've had. Only a couple of years to, to learn what this is like. and But a lot of it, you know, in terms of like having a little bit of an aura and the air smells a little weird ahead of time and then you don't remember very much right away um, until you do and it's not fun and everything hurts, including
2: like my hair afterward. Is wow. any of that familiar? Um, it, it, my experience was not exactly like that, uh, but I was unable to do arithmetic in my head for three weeks. Fair. I didn't try. (laughs) Well, I don't need it often, but you know, sometimes you do. And like I had to, um, the lightning lit my house on fire and I had to move my home business into my temporary apartment and I, I, my logic was damaged for a bit too. So I had all of my stuff and I had the empty truck and I just kept looking back and forth between my stuff and the empty U-Haul truck, unable to understand what was supposed to happen next. Until one of my helpers, like, so you want us to start moving the boxes? Like that thing you said, yes, that, that's what we're going to do. We're Brilliant move the stuff into the empty truck. It's all so clear now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, so we
3: adopted our fourth in the, the, in the year 2015. It's a, it's a process. It turns out it's a lot quicker to conceive kids than it is to adopt them. Mm-hmm. And, so it was like, it was on her birthday, so August 2015, when the adoption was finalized, and I developed epilepsy in about six months later, spring of 2016, and I went about it all wrong, apparently. Um, I didn't realize that there was an application process, but I was asleep, which is when apparently you are the least likely to have a tonic-clonic grand mal seizure. I was on three different anti-seizure medications for other reasons, but still they should have helped. And then once I fell into the seizure, I stayed in it for about five hours.
2: Wow. You're not the 1%, you're the plus or minus 1%.
3: <laughs> right? I, and many, many of my stories are like that. And my first memory after, and I've only had two hospitalization-worthy seizure events um and so and this was the first one and my first major memory was I'm in the i c u don't entirely understand how I got there, and my husband is in the process of d- explaining to me how I got there, so I've clearly asked, but didn't even remember asking, much less remembering the first half of his sentence, and I can see by the look at his face that this is not the first time that that we we've gone through this several times already, and so. I tried to stop asking questions and just wait a little while because that's always been a skill I'm terrible, terrible at, but you know what? I tried. And we come home a day or so later and sort of prop me up on the couch because one of the things I never realized about seizure is that all of your muscles, including the muscles you don't have, tense and stay tensed and then you hurt like you've just been beaten by a professional because you kind of were. And so I'm just sort of limping in and I sit on the couch and our fourth child who I just spent, you know, she'd been in our home for a year and a half and I just spent a year going through the legal machinations to, to make her mine. She walks in the room and I was like, who's that? Oh boy. (laughs) That must have done wonders for her. Well, she didn't hear, I don't think, or it's hard to know. Like she's, she, she joined us with some challenges. We'll say, um, so, I don't think she would have noticed as it was. But my husband was like, "Oh, you're not all the way booted up yet, are you? Like, you're still buffering." <laughs> yep, I think I'm still now buffering. Several years <laughs> later, but it's fine. Anyway, we kind of knew this was going to happen, didn't we? <laughs> didn't we? Um, do you want to try to stay focused, or do you want to
2: just go down the rabbit holes? Because I, I we did okay. research. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about the the topic that we both have done research for. And then we'll just see, you know, we'll keep it loose. We'll see what happens.
3: There we go. Uh Because you had suggested talking about June and Jennifer Gibbons. And I love that case.
2: The fascinating case of the silent twins.
3: There's so there are so many things wrong with this. Like their case is one of those like. Exemplars for ways the system
2: can break and not get it. You mean in terms in terms of like the the directions of their care?
3: There were directions of their care, the directions of how people understood who they were uh, before they needed care, and I think culturally, sociologically, like there's a lot. Like every all, at every point of this story, I keep coming across things where I'm like, oh, that was more of a problem than they realized oh, this was problematic too. And by the time these girls are like 14 years old, I'm like, they're fucked. Mm -hmm. So, but it's not a well-known
2: case, I don't think. Not as well-known as I think it should be, given how really truly bizarre their lives were and the dark and still unsolved twist that they took.
3: Yeah, yeah. Why don't you, let's get, let's get rolling on it. Let's, tell people who they were, where they came from, that sort of thing.
2: Well, I can give you a quick synopsis. Sure. Uh, June and Jennifer Gibbons were born to uh, Caribbean parents who very soon after moved to Wales. So they were the only children of African descent in town. And this was in the early 1960s. So fans of Call the Midwife kind of picture the same thing, but somehow even whiter than the East End of London. Uh, so the girls were very badly bullied. Um, their teachers would even let them leave school early so they could get, you know, beat their classmates home, uh, which twins tend to are prone to socializing exclusively with each other to begin with. But that just made it worse. And they were given to isolate themselves. Uh, the girls would walk in lockstep. They would finish each other's sentences. They would finish each other's actions uh, their twin speak, which was a form of modified English and um, Barbadian and slang languages, their family rarely even heard it because they wouldn't even speak around their family with the exception of their youngest siblings. Because there were other children uh, in the family. They also spoke in a strange robotic staccato and very quickly. Um Do you want me? Do we want to go uh, into the? the therapeutic section of their life?
3: Not yet. (laughs) But, you know, because I think some of what this, I mean, just being persons of color in the 1960s in Wales, not easy, fair. But even before that, like just the parents seemed to have a really odd, to me, combination of both over-pathologizing and ignoring these kids. So for a long time, they ignored the fact that they spoke late, which is kind of common for younger siblings. They had at least two older siblings when they were born. If I maybe, maybe not, maybe it's they are the middle children of four. I don't remember now. I know that there are their younger sisters, Ruby, and they yeah. have an older.
2: Yeah, they were, they were in the middle of the sibling group.
3: Okay. And so it's common. For the oldest child in a family to speak early and then subsequent kids speak a little bit later because their siblings talk for them. And then when it's twins, they, they develop often like a twin speak, which is just sort of a baby talk shorthand slang kind of thing, you know, because they create their own little club in a way they Basically, socialize, yeah. but you know, a lot of times, especially then it was seen as this is because they're not socialized enough. When in reality, twins get more socialization than most babies because they have somebody with them all the time. So they're actually developing quicker and they just don't bother with the language that other people do.
2: Yeah, They just don't need it. Cause they have someone to talk to who understands them perfectly fine. Right. They get the shorthand.
3: Um, But so the parents sort of ignored the fact that they spoke late. And then when it was pointed out, hey, your kids are not speaking on time. You know, that that, this is now interfering with school. They are not interacting, not just with the other kids, but they're not interacting at all in the classroom. They're not speaking at all. We need, you know, we think there's a problem. They should see a speech pathologist. And they saw a speech pathologist who said, yeah, no, it's not mechanical. Um, probably psychological, probably anxiety, which would be a totally normal way to feel because twins get extra attention and people of color get extra attention and you combine the two and that's a rough life. But instead the parents went, no, 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 this isn't anxiety. It has to be mechanical. And so they effectively doctor shopped until they found a doctor who was willing to agree that the girls were probably what's colloquially, colloquially called tongue tied. Um, the frenulum is, and I'm pointing, I I understand (laughs) that's not useful on a podcast, but the, the frenulum is the little, the little thingy that sort of anchors your tongue down underneath, right? And if it is, if there's too much of it, you can't stick your tongue out as far. You can't speak as clearly being tongue tied doesn't mean language develops slowly. And it's usually evident pretty much from birth because babies have difficulty eating. But for reasons unclear, this doctor decided, let's, let's go ahead and do the thing, which is, and this is horrible, keeping kids awake. They're given sometimes a numbing agent. I don't know if they even had that much, but they, it's literally just using like a pair of clippers to break that, that frenulum, that piece of tissue that anchors your tongue down so that you can stick your tongue out farther.
2: Yeah. I mean, I had the one, um, uh, between my lower gums and lip, um, severed by the, by the dentist, not just for fun. Um, and that was done with a local. So I'm, I'm hoping that their experience, even though this was the sixties, I'm hoping their experience was similar.
3: Well, the problem is they were young and they often don't use like some my, my kids, my oldest is 19 and the next one is 15. And it, it was between having those two kids that the scientific community believed that infants feel pain. Yeah, it was
2: the 1980s.
3: That was when the earliest studies started to show up. But the actual obstetric practitioners who are the ones who perform um, uh, circumcision, they didn't believe it. Like, so there were scientific studies from beginning in the 80s saying, hey, guess what? Newborns,
2: they're human. What do you know? They feel pain, just like humans. It's bizarre looking back on it thinking that, that they would think, well, they don't have the nervous system for it. I, I'm pretty sure if you stick them, like, or you pinch them, or if they're the slightest bit cold or hot or hungry, yeah, they, they are reacting to painful stimuli. Cause yeah, they would just give, uh, they would, and not just, Circumcision, but all manner of medical procedures, they would give them um, paralyzing drugs, muscle relaxants things, so they wouldn't squirm. And that's it.
3: Sometimes, you know, and sometimes, like with the circumcision, sometimes not even that. Sometimes it was just a case of like, okay, here we go. And so, my oldest is a girl, and so that was not of of any source of uh, conversation with the obstetrician, because the the fact that the obstetrician is the one that does the circumcision procedure instead of the pediatrician was always a little bit strange to me, but okay. Uh, Cause it's done at like two or three days old, but that my second one being a boy, they were like, do you think that we should have him circumcised? And my immediate question was, well, more importantly, what are your pain control measures? Because he's just kind of been through a lot. (laughs) And that conversation just in that five year difference shifted significantly. So I, I suspect that in the early 1960s, they were, you know, both seen as not needing it. And also it was seen as more dangerous because kids weren't you, you weren't able to test uh, scientific procedures on kids. And so therefore, let's just
2: not use them. Well, I mean, even now we only—the vast majority of medical testing is only done on white males, you know. It's or just on on males, you know. Even though females are fifty-one percent of the population, there's this medical mindset: if it works for men, then we'll test it on females because females are complicated with all their hormones and stuff. But what if there was a drug that would work for females that didn't work for males, and we'll it's we'll never get it. Because it didn't work for the guys.
3: Well, as well, you know, the female hormonal makeup is enough different in that it's very likely that there's a lot of like there are just a lot of drugs out there. You know, Viagra works very differently for men than for women. And that was
2: only supposed to treat angina.
3: Angina. Yeah, got it. Uh huh. It's true. (laughs) I just had never never quite thought of the rhyme there that I'm going to let go I of. I wasn't,
2: I wasn't, that wasn't what I was going for, but it's nice oh. to know that I could just luck into filth. <laughs> yes,
3: that's just, this is where I live. Yes. Um, so, anyway, <laughs> it is. I, I mean, I, I record in my basement. <laughs> so, so anyway, I think that that medical procedure was probably fairly traumatizing to the girls um, because then the, you know, first of all, it hurt. Secondly, it slowed down their ability to communicate with each other, which was the only person they were able to communicate with. So that's scary. And then at the end of the day, it was never a mechanical problem in the first place. And so now, very young, five or six years old, they're already being treated for the wrong thing and being told how they actually feel and what they actually need. And, I mean, none of that would encourage me to speak more.
2: Yeah. they're not in a welcoming feeling environment no um they also though interesting to
3: me um they refuse to read or write which is that's kind of unusual because as far as i understand there was no indication of any learning disability um they were able to communicate they were able to they, once they decided they wanted to learn how to read and once they decided they wanted to learn how to write, they did. So all of this to me is, is screaming, these are kids with an anxiety disorder and let's pay them some attention. But they made it to like age 11 or something before anybody really realized that they, they couldn't read or write.
2: Now, see, I find that interesting because later in life, one of the things that they did while sequestered in their room as teenagers was write uh was write uh journals and create elaborate fictions and backstories for their dolls and even write some novels uh both girls uh were published they didn't do well but you know they're out there
3: the, you know it's true and and i that's that was a case that they they left school i think about age 11 or 12, somewhere like they left what we would in the U.S. consider public school um, to they were sent to a boarding school and they did terribly. And so came home and effectively sort of dropped out in their early teens. And I'm not clear which one of them decided they had stories to tell that they wanted to commit to paper. And so somebody gave them a journal. For a birthday or a holiday, that they started first, just scribbling in, and then they were effectively self-taught. They got an encyclopedia, and were self-taught in grammar and punctuation and spelling.
2: Wow, respect!
3: Right, especially English, because English is not a well-behaved language. It is not. So, I think they started writing writing out there. Like I think they first, in the way of a lot of authors and creative people they started by acting their stories out when they were very young but then it was around age 16 that they started writing then they took like this mail order course on creative writing and they also created these diaries and they wrote in tiny tiny handwriting uh that was almost illegible to anyone else which just goes along to me with the like why would it, you learn how to speak clearly if nobody listens? Why would you learn how to write clearly if nobody reads it?
2: Well, it's heavy. Yeah, cuz the, the the writing does parallel their speech. And June wrote the first one. Do you know about their their novels? Yeah, let me let me get back to that section specifically because uh, june published uh the pepsi cola addict in 1982 which was a novel about a boy who was sent to a reform school after having an affair with a teacher and is then subjected to unwanted sexual advances from a male guard at the reform school and jennifer wrote a novel called disco mania that described the excessive violence at a disco bar both of which i mean in
3: if you're going to write a first novel in your mid-teens i think they were around 16 at this point, 19 when it was published but i think when pepsi cola addict was published i think that they were 19 but i think they were 16 when they wrote it approximately and doesn't that sound like if you're going to be dropped out of school home full-time writing based on the things you watch on tv or hear on the radio like those are perfect plots
2: yeah i mean they are really fitting for the uh, for the era and for people who you know I can't speak for them but I don't think it's a great stretch to say that they felt uh, like outsiders.
3: And don't really understand how the outside world works because why would they?
2: Yeah they're in their room Uh, their parents would have to leave their food by their door you know or their younger sister would be allowed to bring it in to them who was Sometimes the only person that they would talk to, she was the only one who could still understand them, you know, and they just collect their food when no one was looking, put the empty dishes back in the hallway. Not that things got a ton better when the girls did go out. When they were teenagers, they had this annoying habit of uh, doing drugs, stealing and setting shit on fire.
3: Well, first there was the
2: indiscriminate sex. Well, of course, the indiscriminate sex.
3: I mean... Yeah, they had a, a neighborhood family, but especially one of the boys that they developed a really pretty unhealthy obsession with, and they each watched each other lose their virginity to this kid.
2: Um, it, it would almost be weird to think of them doing it separately. I Any, mean, you know, this is like, oh, they did it together. That's weird. I'm like, and eh, would probably be weirder if they <laughs> if they if they did it separately. You know, they've done everything else together. Why stop now? I, okay. I mean, yeah, fair, and and. You know, this kid, the bragging rights, nobody's ever going to believe him. <laughs> but, yeah.
3: Well, Twins. they believe him now, right? <laughs> well, but that's the thing, is that it wasn't at the same time.
2: Oh, that, well, that's less good.
3: That would have been almost more expected to me. But apparently what happened, and now I can't remember which which the order was, um, but I believe that it was that he tried to have sex with June first, and it didn't work and that's as descriptive as i know it's just that it didn't work and so while she was sort of recovering from this not worked thing he had sex with her sister and then the next day or two days later whatever it was very soon thereafter the girls went back and visited it again and that subsequent visit he had
2: sex successfully with june Yeah. And I think, didn't, didn't he then kind of, as the kids say these days, um, ghost them? Well, he told them to
3: fuck off. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That that they were being creepy and, which, I mean,
2: they were. Yeah. No, they were, I don't think there's been an account yet that creepy wouldn't uh, apply to, but then that was yet another thing that hastened and, and made more severe their isolation. Is another reason to withdraw from people and just be with each other. Yeah, they got hurt.
3: They got hurt. He told them, fuck off. And then for the rest of that summer, they kept going to his house because they didn't leave their house for any other reason. And his, theirs was a military family. His was also a military family. And they didn't clue in that he was moving away until they showed up on the day that the moving trucks were in the driveway. Mm. So a lot of abandonment, a lot of being misunderstood, a lot of now associating sex with value and a degree of violence. He, he was observed abusing each of them at different times. So, you know, as though trauma wasn't prevalent enough in these girls' lives. It's
2: rough. It's just like this. Cause I, I, this, this was, yeah, theirs was one topic among a few that I covered in, you know, a half hour. Uh, podcast, and you've def- you've definitely gone more in depth than I did, and and every single th- point you're making, every every single incident, is just like, yeah, that is a good reason to go back to my room and just hang out with my sister, who is the only person on the in the world who understands me completely, and not talk to anybody else. Well, and so, they hated you know. each other at the same time, which I, I also they, get. They yeah. I, I have five sisters, <laughs> don't, don't, don't explain to me. Yeah, and they w- they were utterly dependent on each other, but their hatred could be as profound as their love. Uh, they, you know, don't del- actually try to murder each other like you do. Um, I want to get the name. I would like to get the name straight on this if I could find it in my notes, because uh, I think one tried to drown the other. Uh, at one point and and the other tried to uh strangle the one with an electrical cord
3: and then yeah you know, more than once I, yeah. I think that it was June attacked Jennifer, yeah,
2: I don't know why I can't find it in here
3: um I, I June had a reputation between the two of them of being sort of the alpha twin,
2: yeah, Jennifer tried to strangle June with the cord from their radio, and June tried to drown Jennifer in the river. <laughs>
3: yeah it seems only fair but then i believe it was june later that a second time tried to kill jennifer when they were in prison which i know i'm jumping ahead there but i think people can guess that this is not a happy story but Mm -hmm. you know multiple strangulation attempts it was not good
2: yeah, this is a very, if you thought this had a happy ending, you haven't been paying attention situation.
3: It's true. It's true. Um, so when they were, when they were seeing this, this guy, uh, Kyle Kennedy, I believe his name was, um, this neighborhood kid, he started pushing, I mean, in the way that teenagers often do, it doesn't make it okay. It just makes it teenagers who are sort of by definition not okay. In many ways, Um, they started uh, low key vandalism, graffiti, breaking things. And then they started setting things on fire,
2: including up to but not limited to a tractor store, because if you're looking for shit to burn, tractor stores right up there.
3: It's the first thing I think of, you know, when I'm going on a pyromania escapade.
2: Yeah, they they tried to set fire to a, a trade school. Which they had vandalized and did manage to set the tractor store uh, on fire, causing hundreds of thousands of pounds in damage.
3: I actually used to. <laughs> I hadn't thought about this in a thousand years. The uh, young man to whom I was engaged before I'm before I whatevered with my husband. I don't hooked up. I guess I don't know what the kids call it these days. Um, but I was engaged to this this guy. Whose father owned a tractor store and the breakup was not great. So, I mean, I'm, I am I, I never, I'm not saying I, I never thought of burning down a tractor store, but I'm not saying I did. You know what I mean?
2: <laughs> we can't prove it. Because I, I, mean, I, I, I didn't actually burn it down. Yeah. So, so there's no physical evidence. There's nothing to tie you to it. <laughs>
3: we we cannot be convicted based on our thoughts that's really yes. important um so they they just they were ramping it up and they got caught because one of the weird things that they would do and this qualifies to me is weird i'm a clinical psychologist and it qualifies to me is weird okay and i have a pretty high tolerance for weird but the, they wouldn't speak or couldn't speak in the presence of most people most of the time and this is you know they're 16 17 years old at this point But they would go set these fires and then they would go find a public payphone, which kids go Google that, if that was a thing. And they would make, like, like they would, they would alert, they would make their own 999 call to alert authorities. They would also make fake 999 calls to say, like, so and so just fell down or there's a fire here when there wasn't. And then other times they would set their own fires and then they would go call and report it in.
2: I wonder if it didn't have, if it wasn't, you know, just part of the ritual for them.
3: Apparently, but, you know, it's just so odd that they didn't usually use their voice at all. And so to use it in this capacity was just an odd. It was a weird moment uh, to me because their voices were pretty recognizable. They didn't have a well-developed diaphragm and they had a very heavy uh, creole sort of accent. Mm -hmm. So when you're in Wales and... You sound like a teenage girl trying to sound like a teenage boy, and you have a heavy Creole accent. The authorities figure it out pretty quickly.
2: Yeah, it's pretty pretty easy to narrow down the suspects. Let's see, there's one Barbadian family in town. Let's start with them. Right. So they got caught,
3: and they first went to just a, you know, a, a jail. I don't remember how long they were in jail. I want to say three years awaiting Maybe it was two years awaiting trial because they flatly refused to engage in any sort of way with anybody in the jail. And when I say refuse to engage, I don't just mean like they weren't very cooperative because I, I having worked in a prison, I can tell you that we expect everybody to be uncooperative. That's why they're in jail. You know, it's sort of a thing. But they, it's not just that they wouldn't speak. They continued that. They wouldn't move.
2: Yeah, they went sort of catatonic.
3: They would, yeah, they wouldn't lie down at night. They had to be like m- manipulated like dolls and then they had to have staff close their eyes for them.
2: Okay, that, that it, that it went to that degree, I did not find that's amazing.
3: It's crazy. Marjorie Wallace was a, a journalist who was welcomed into the family home very shortly after the girls were arrested, and the parents provided Marjorie with their journals that she was able to decipher. And then she started visiting the girls in when they were in, in jail, and continued visiting with them throughout the rest of their ordeals. And her book, uh, *The Silent Twins*, is amazing.
2: Yeah, she was one of the, the few people that was able to connect with them. And it took years to do it.
3: Yeah. So they were in jail for a couple of years. And, you know, it's very hard to do an evaluation of someone's, you know, criminal responsibility when they won't speak to you. So it took a long time. And there was just a lot of legal machinations because they did the crimes that they did when they were under 18. But then they were arrested very close to their 18th birthday, I think. Uh, there were adults, in any case, by the time the trial rolled around. And so status became an issue. And then
2: also, where do we put them? Well, we know where they ended up later. <laughs> do tell. Broodmoor Hospital,
3: uh, which... Scary, scary place.
2: Just, it sounds scary. Or Broadmoor, excuse me. It just, I don't know why my brain has to make it sound even worse than it is. Because more, you know has like the hound of the baskervilles kind of connotation and just old british mental hospital yeah very victorian looking
3: you know picture all of the scary kirkbride institution looming asylums not hospitals so much that's what this looked like
2: yeah like picture american horror story asylum but without the aliens because what the fuck was that anyway (laughs) I'm still mad about that shit. <laughs> I mean It's like it's like we had two half baked ideas, we jammed them together and then Anne Frank was there for some reason. What the
3: hell? I was just gonna say I had a harder I had a worse time with Anne Frank being there than the aliens, and I, I don't know what that says about me now.
2: <laughs> though though bonus fact, um they managed the thoroughly convincing look of the young James Cromwell by just having his son do it. That was just his son playing young him. i I Imagine that you get like a discount
3: too on, you know, a twofer in the family. Yeah, it's a bulk rate. <laughs> exactly. So they end up in Broadmoor. is a scary place. It's where the Yorkshire Ripper ended up. It's where I mean the the Croy one one or maybe both of the Croy twins were there, who were, uh pretty horrible, awful, disgusting, no good, very bad British mafia dudes um i mean everybody was there uh uh one of the moore's murders uh ian guy whose last name i've lost suddenly now that i want to find it bad people there rapists serial killers uh serious criminals and now you've got these two very young girls 19 years old who they did some vandalism like they broke some
2: rules but Yeah, they were they were sent to a maximum security facility for the criminally insane. You know, they were vandals, you know, yeah, they yeah, they they burned down a heavy equipment store. But on the balance with rape and murder, you know, not as bad. Sure, I'm not saying send them to juvie and give them, you know, community service, but maximum security facility for the criminally, criminally insane. It did not help matters. It seemed disproportionate.
3: It was not ideal. And they spent 10 years there, um, you know, so a solid decade in a very hardening place. And the thing about, like, the if you want to learn how to become a better criminal, spend some time in prison. If you want to learn how to go crazy, spend some time in a psych hospital, because that's what you're surrounded with. And it becomes very difficult to find a baseline of normal or proportion anymore. And so these, these, these two girls and they, like, I still think of them as girls. They were born in 1963. And in my mind, they're always going to be 19 year old girls, you know, and they didn't have even 19 year old kid. Like when I have a 19 year old and I look at her like, you're a baby, but my kid at least can like drive public, take public transportation and can, you know, order food in a McDonald's or whatever. These girls didn't even have that level of functioning. And it just doesn't sound like anybody recognized, Hey, let's treat them for anxiety, maybe trauma. Because once they were at Broadmoor, they almost immediately started receiving like strong enough to kill a horse level antipsychotic medications.
2: Yeah. Cause this is, this is Britain in the 1980s. Uh, it's not the first place you want to be receiving, well, most care,
3: <laughs> <laughs> especially you know, and and they, so it it sounds to me, and I I didn't follow this thread deep enough, so I don't remember what the medication was that was used, but it sounds to me based on aftercare later that it was something comparable to held all, which is still in use now and held all is an injectable medication that people who are uh chronically not oh shit i've lost the word uh they don't take their meds when they're supposed to compliant there it is when they're chron- chronically non-compliant with their medication and as long as they take their meds they're pretty functional on the outside world and the only difference between them surviving the outside world and needing you know long-term hospitalization is being on these meds so we take away their rights and we inject them i i have mixed feelings on that whole thing but especially in the you know now we're into the late, late 70s early 80s we weren't so concerned about their rights so much as sit down shut up and behave So they were getting injectable, high-grade, high-dose antipsychotic medication with no indication that they ever had psychosis.
2: Yeah, they were just weird and difficult, and we didn't like it, so drugs. Did did they get ECT as well?
3: I don't think so. ECT was mostly considered the treatment for uh, either fully diagnosed schizophrenia, which I've never seen Then be diagnosed with. Selective mutism was its own diagnosis. And I'm not sure it was selective. I think they had anxiety that effectively paralyzed, it caught the words caught in their throat, sort of literally. Um, And ECT is good for, it's still used now for chronic depression, medication-resistant depression. Um,
2: But not with the frequency or the wattage that it once was. Well, true. I, don't, yeah. I just I don't want I don't want anyone who's hearing this who's surprised to learn that it's used in the modern day. I don't want them picturing one flew over the cuckoo's nest. It's it's not like that anymore.
3: No, it's it's it, it, so ECT, you know, here's my fun fact on that: is the ECT, the reason that it even is a thing is because somebody noticed that it's really unusual for people with epilepsy to develop schizophrenia. And humans being quick to draw connections where connections may or may not exist.
2: We do love drawing connections.
3: We decided, instead of saying, you know what, it's a really small population of the world that has epilepsy, and it's a really small population of the world that has schizophrenia, so it makes sense that there's not many people who have both. Instead, we said, ooh, I bet it's the seizures that are preventing them from developing schizophrenia. Let's start applying electricity directly to the brain. We also used to give people with schizophrenia diabetes. We used to put them in ice pads and we used to give them malaria and yellow fever.
2: Yeah, because the the fevers of those diseases were thought to be useful. Well, it was just seen as you didn't see people with both. You didn't see a lot of people with diabetes that also had schizophrenia. So, so there must be a causative relationship. It definitely couldn't be a coincidence. It's not
3: correlation. It's causation. Exactly. So, I, I don't, I have not read that, that they did receive ECT. I don't know, but in the, in the eighties, it was pretty rough. It was, you got usually like a, a short wooden dowel in your mouth. You were strapped down to the table. They zapped you real quick. And because people post ECT didn't complain all that much about pain, mostly because they weren't able to articulate it for a while, the assumption was, well, that didn't hurt. And it, took a while before the epileptics and post ECT people of the world to say, Hey, dial it down a notch. That shit
2: hurts. (laughs) Okay. It took me a little while to pull myself together, but I would just like to let you know, um, that fucking sucked. Yeah. Can we not do this anymore? Uh, Seriously. And so, and I mean, and so now ECT, the
3: procedure is very much like going in for a regular outpatient surgery. You know, you're, you're given, um, like a muscle relaxant in your, you're, you're put under general anesthesia, usually with benzos, um, which also help both with unconsciousness and also relaxation after the procedure. They help prevent your muscles from getting quite as tense during it. And it's real short, real focused zaps to the brain, which all sounds great, except we still don't really know why it works. Yeah. So that's fun.
2: I wonder if any has if anyone's ever experimented with deep brain stimulation for for those conditions as they have with um, Parkinson's. Because my first husband had a spinal cord stimulator for his chronic pain, which is it physically very much like a pacemaker, where you got the little battery and the controller and the leads. In his case, it was put into the uh, the leads go into the fluid around the spine to send, use an electrical signal to block uh, pain getting to his brain. For deep brain stimulation, the electro electrical leads go uh deep into the brain so they're not huh. no pun intended burying the lead on that one um <laughs> I, I, now now I'm, I'm gonna have to remind myself to you know what other conditions um deep brain stimulation has been tested for because it it does remarkable things for people with Parkinson's it's you know I I think it's a I don't know I, I think it's a fascinating
3: idea one of the one of the challenges is that for things like schizophrenia, when it's profound enough to need a surgical type intervention, first of all, the people who are experiencing it cannot consent. And we value consent more now than we used to, which is, I'm all for that. Secondly, especially the Americans and their overuse of the lobotomy. Yeah, I was
2: just getting to that when you were, as you were saying consent, I'm like, oh boy, let's get the Rosemary Kennedy story <laughs> together. <laughs>
3: It, it is it's in so i mean i, I did an, an episode not terribly long ago with jess and joe from cutting Class. great
2: great great guys
3: i'm i love them and we we talked about lobotomies and so the longer version is there the the shorter version is that somebody discovered at some point that the th- the basic procedure that they would use on the Egyptian pharaohs to remove the brain, if you do that to somebody who's still alive and you don't remove so much as just stir it around, they're less fractious, less prone to acting out, less prone to a lot of other unpleasant
2: symptoms. Also less prone to being able to take themselves to the toilet or swallow food on their own. As well, yes. yeah. Sometimes they stop breathing altogether. Yeah, quite a few of them did. Uh, and it didn't help that the doctor who was so keen on doing it would uh, would not wear gloves. Oh, well, I mean, Walter Freeman drove around the country in his lobotomobile. Yeah, he was 100 years late to be a medicine showman, but that didn't stop him. He would do it two handed. He would do two lobotomies at once with literal ice picks, literal ice picks from his family kitchen drawer, jam them into someone's skull, wiggle it around for a bit till he felt like something good had happened and then declare the, the operation a success, collect his speaking fee and move on.
3: Move on quick before they died of the infection because oddly, sticking an ice pick through your tear duct is not great. Yeah, no bueno. <laughs> no bueno.
2: But I guess it was probably like when when my mom um, my mom had a, a wedding business and we would set the cake up and it's, you know, If we were out of the building before it fell, if, like, God forbid a cake wedding cake falls, if we're out of the building, it is no longer our fault. If it was standing the entire time we were in the building, we are not responsible for what happened afterwards. So I think he was like, and I will be in Cleveland before this person dies. To wit, must have been post-operative care.
3: Yeah, right? Like, they should have been wearing gloves, not me. Yeah damn nurses (laughs) it's always the nurses it's certainly the women
2: yeah oh and have you ever listened to the people are wild podcast oh i love kim she's been in my home that is amazing i am just tickled pink to hear that (laughs) she's so great
3: yes and kim by the way has not as far as i know had a frontal lobotomy i'll ask her
2: no she's (laughs) far too busy for someone who has been lobotomized and and for those who don't know what we're talking about, uh, People Are Wild is a podcast hosted by a uh, travel nurse. You'll know you found the right one because her logo is an x-ray of someone with a light bulb in their rectum. And uh if you want a good sampling of what she talks about, I really recommend starting with her episode talking about her experience working as a nurse at Burning Man. It was really fascinating. She, she
3: yeah, she and I have had off-air talks about that too, and I- I'm not strong enough. I'm not a strong enough person for Burning Man, it turns out. Like, I would have thought I was, but no, no, turns out no. So, yeah, no, she's, she's got stories. <laughs> um, so, yeah, anyway, the Gibbons twins were not lobotomized and I don't think they received ECT. Um, lobotomy is mostly, mostly not used now technically. ECT still is, um, both outpatient and inpatient fairly regularly but mostly just for treatment-resistant depression. Um, but so one of the things that happened, that again, everybody mentions this, not everybody, people mention this, but they don't seem to, to, in my view, give enough attention to the fact that these were two different human beings. And twins do have a lot in common. I'll grant that. But they are still separate human beings with a separate sort of accumulated life history and health history and so on. So they were given the same drugs and the same dosages at the same time, but Jenny didn't react as well as June physically. She developed something called tardive dyskinesia, which is hard to describe. It used to be hard to describe. It's easier now because more people understand what I say. If I say you ever seen a person on meth walk down the street.
2: <laughs> hey, I, I, Hey, Hey, I- if the analogy works, okay, <laughs> right. it's not your but, fault. Right. But that's the thing: is that there's just a people see.
3: It's, so tardive dyskinesia is smaller movements than that. It's it's bigger movements than Parkinson's, but smaller than somebody who's tweaking. Um, but there's a there's a tremor, um, but also sort of a loose jointed move, as though they are very uncomfortable. Although they will usually tell you that they're not in that much pain. But they move as though their body aches. And then if you look at somebody who's full-on tweaking, well, they move like they're on meth. I, I don't know how to describe it any better. Um, but Jenny developed tardive dyskinesia, which is a fairly common network of symptoms, physical symptoms. Um, there's also a thing called a tongue thrust, which happens where Freezing. you... I mean, right? It's not exactly a beautiful phrase but it is exactly what it is it's when you you know you see a full-grown adult sticking their tongue out at people is what it looks it looks deliberate and it's not um it's like restless leg for the whole body i guess and june so the thing about it is that you're supposed to ramp someone up very slowly on antipsychotic medications because once you get td you don't unget it
2: like it like it's permanent or yeah wow
3: yeah, it might – there are there are drugs that can reduce it, but then you have to be on those for the rest of your life. And the, there's some, you know, basic tremor and the tongue thrust and some of the twitch, like, especially, like, they'll get, like, a tick over their eye, that kind of thing, um, that just doesn't go away. And it's obnoxious and it makes people very self-conscious when they're already kind of self-conscious because they're already living in a hostile world. So you're supposed to ramp up slowly because as soon as you start to see symptoms of tardive dyskinesia, you not just slow down on the medication, you stop it altogether because there are other options. But instead, they just hit these girls with really high dose IV or IM, either intravenous or intramuscular drugs right up front. So there's no there's no backing down. And June seemed to tolerate it okay. Jenny did not. And this to me is fairly important later in terms of their medical help. Uh, they were eventually stepped back down off the antipsychotic when the staff kind of clued in that they're not psychotic, but the damage had been done.
2: You'd imagine somebody being like, you know, I'm looking at these girls and I'm thinking, maybe, now hear me out, just maybe not actually psychotic just weird teenagers who could use some talk therapy don't just no i'm just saying i'm just saying it's all
3: also by the way they've been raped also by the way they've been bullied so severely that school is voluntarily allowing them to leave early no totally psychosis
2: totally yeah psychosis. totally to meds just all the meds yeah get them down
3: so they were in broadmoor for a long time over a decade
2: so i mean at, at the point of at at the end point that's a, th- a third of their life yeah like like think of your life where you are right now do the math get your phone out if you have to and imagine having been in a maximum security facility for the criminally insane which is what this thing was called this isn't i'm not editorializing that's what it was called for a third of your existence
3: for your 20s all of yeah. their 20s the entire 20s gone there's no you know and then and Somebody finally clued in. I mean, their parents, again, it was this odd, like, the parents acted a lot like, well, we didn't know they were going to Broadmoor, but they must have. It was said in court.
2: With the, with the parents, I'm, I'm a very, I'm a very devil's advocate kind of person. And I could see them just not knowing what to do. Just that they have these. I don't think they knew. I agree. I don't think they knew
3: what they should do. I just, but I, they acted like they didn't even know what was being done. And I, I think that's a step too far.
2: Maybe they didn't think they could do anything about it. Maybe.
3: Uh, you know, and as, as a parent, I know that I come off in many stories, um, as judgmental because I
2: totally am. Like. We all are. At least you're admitting it.
3: You know, I just, I, I because, uh, I, I, I feel like, My kids didn't choose to be born. They didn't choose the family that they were brought into the world in. They didn't choose very much. They don't have any rights. They don't have any possessions. Uh, You know, life for your first 18 years in the U.S. is at your parents' whim, in many, many ways. And so it's my job not to be an asshole. And sometimes not being an asshole means learning and stepping up and advocating. And so I do understand that in the 80s... The role of parent was different and culturally coming from, you know, a military family. So they weren't well rooted in any one community and being people of color in a not color part of the world also played against them. So, like, I do have sympathy,
2: but not as much as I I I want to go off a total tangent here. Did you hear about the uh, the Indian man suing his parents for having given birth to him?
3: No, that's amazing.
2: Yeah, because they subjected him to, you know, all of the bad things in life without his permission. Uh, He was going to take them to court. They're both lawyers. (laughs) And I think his his mother said something to the effect of, you know, I look forward to seeing his case. (laughs) You know, good luck. Well, is he representing himself? One can only hope. I hope. One can only hope. Because he'll have to get like a Lionel Hutz style attorney. Otherwise, uh, for those people old enough to remember Lionel Hutz on The Simpsons and Jesus, is that ever going to go off the air? Probably not. I, th- I think they're finally canceling. It's only been on for an, literally 30 years and it stopped being good like 18 ago.
3: <laughs> it's true.
2: Like, even the people that work on it agree that like season nine was when it took a, a decided turn for the worst. It never really recovered. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. That's fine. <laughs> These just tangents are how my mind works. It's a beautiful it. branching tree of utter nonsense and bullshit factoids. The best. Like, for example, the, uh, longest place name in any English speaking country is in the Gibbons, uh, adoptive home of Wales. It is a town called Lanfer, Perquini, Gogera, Conjurova, Gogogo. That is one word. It is 59 letters long. There are four L's touching. Oh my God. I'm not going to spell it because it's fucking Welsh.
3: It's, yeah, I was going to say, I, having, having been in Wales uh, last year, it really feels like their entire roadmap system both the roads themselves and the signs were designed by vandals
2: yeah and they just left it or, yeah. or somebody somebody did it as a joke and nobody ever corrected them and like wow it's they're, it's still up the, they're I all mean, being there's... very
3: polite about it like nobody yeah. wants to <laughs> nobody wants to point out like um joe uh <laughs> about that it's a lovely sign the letters are the l's are very straight yeah i, I mean i know the longest See, I'm terrified to say this to you now because you prove be me wrong. Fine, I can be wrong. I, I, I believe I know the longest word in the English language: uh, all transmicroscopic silicol
2: Yes, I just today learned the longest non-technical word. I learned it from a coworker, but I haven't memorized it yet. So I'm going to Google it. it it's a, it's a beautiful word, and every time he says it, I just I giggle. I, just something about the existence of this word. Um practiced it much. It's 29 letters long. It is the act of estimating something as worthless. And I think I didn't even get all the syllables. That sounds technical. Flockino, Flockino sinohil, hilip, if for anyone wants to Google it, start with F-L-O-C-C and Google will probably fill it in. Of course, my phone was undoubtedly listening to me talk to my
3: Worker. <laughs> it's what they do, yeah. It's what they do. Yeah, no, the the word that I... neumann silico silicovolcanoconiosis, is a type of pneumonia that you get by breathing in volcanic ash.
2: Yep. I'm trying to teach my um, seven-year-old niece to say that one. She loves the word um, uh, triscodecophobia. Mm-hmm. That's her, her great big word. So I'm trying to teach her... Uh, n- you know pneumo etc volcaniconiosis. (laughs) i i I tend to miss out one of the segments in the middle but i can never remember which one um because i I will eventually get back to doing the podcast that i do with her which is science with savannah age seven which it would be great if i could pick it back up before she turns eight (laughs) well yeah because then you have to change your name and everything yeah well i already planned for that i mean we'll just drop the age seven off of it but to to kick it off i figure people like oh cute child science show you know they'll be more likely to watch it 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 sounds cute, like I, I, I and I'm not especially prone to cute,
0: but
3: but I mean I have a seven year old, so I'll make her watch.
2: Yeah, because uh, we we do, we do it a podcast and a YouTube channel, and um, I underestimated the workload of of adding another podcast with a YouTube channel to what I'm already doing. You know, working two jobs, doing my podcast. I didn't think about trying to keep a seven year old with ADD on task when I have ADD. It is a struggle because we are both bored and I'm trying to keep both of us just, can we please just finish the script? No, you can't take a break. We took a break 15 minutes ago. (laughs) Well, okay. Okay. Look, if we can just get through this, just give me one good take and then we'll go watch go mythical, good mythical morning. Or she calls it uh, the two guys eating stuff. (laughs) She likes to watch, watch Rhett and Link eating stuff.
3: I mean, that's fair. I, I spend a lot of time referring to all of ESPN. As the guys yelling at each other show. So I, I, understand the, you find, you find the part that connects with you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I love this. I love this. I absolutely do this. So tardive gistonesia, bad thing to have. Jenny got it. June didn't. And eventually through Marjorie Wallace's work, mostly, who's the journalist that eventually wrote the book about them. Um, but she was also publishing in the Sunday Times, Uh, there became enough attention that there became a groundswell of movement to say, hey, these two kids who are not psychotic, let's stop giving them antipsychotic medication and let's release them from Broadmoor. And so the process started. And uh, many of us who are not living this life might look at it and think, that's good. That's good. Let's let them out. But institutionalization is a thing, and while they never had a happy life anywhere, they weren't wildly less... It's not that they were less happy in Broadmoor, because of course they were, but the idea of the freedom of the open road did not appeal to the Gibbons twins.
2: Yeah, they weren't exactly ready for the world. They weren't doing so great when they were out in it, let alone having missed 10 years of... The development of the world, the development of themselves, and just the basics of interacting with, let's call it a normal, you know, day-to-day life. So, yeah, turning them them loose isn't going to fix any – you've broken them more. Turning them loose is not going to fix them.
3: Especially because they were being turned loose in a very public way. Um, People knew about it. Uh, They were still people of color in a wildly – white corner of the the world and they were still twins and so they were going to they knew they were going to get attention and they started saying things to their family and to marjorie wallace maybe also to some of the staff at broadmoor that's not really clear to me uh who they were and were not speaking to but they started saying things that effectively boiled down to we cannot both survive in the outside world one of us has to die
2: yeah i'm um- uh in, in 1993, uh, they were moved to a lower security facility closer to their family, and Jennifer told uh, Ms. Wallace, I'm going to have to die. We've decided. Because the girls realized that two, as long as there were two of them, as long as they were the Gibbons twins, they couldn't have a normal life. They couldn't have a good life. But one of them on her own stood a chance. But the only way they could ever truly be separated would be by death. And so I don't, we don't know by what process they decided, but they decided that it was going to be Jennifer.
3: And yeah, so they got it was, I want to say, about an hour and a half drive from Broadmoor to the Caswell Clinic in Wales which is the lower security place that they were supposed to transition to before being ultimately released. And as they got into the, the bus or van or probably not a Porsche, I don't know. I don't want to assume.
2: Van of some kind, probably uh,
3: that Jenny looked at June and said, I don't feel, and pretty much never spoke again. You know, she, she said, I don't feel, I think I'm dying and that was kind of the last words that anyone heard um in, including including June by June's report by the time they arrived at the Caswell clinic she was effectively catatonic um but not in the way that they had been upon their arrival to in jail like when they arrived in jail it it was a selective catatonia I mean, They by choice you know the the they were choosing to stand rigid or they were choosing to sit still but they also made choices like one would sit down and eat and the other wouldn't and vice versa so like they there was a a, a symmetry to their decisions this didn't seem by choice and june was alarmed by it because she was like i this isn't i don't know what she's doing this is not a this is not a a thing a stunt we're pulling together she didn't even tell me what's going on she's not okay somebody pay attention she's not okay she was how i don't remember how long it took for her them to get her to the hospital but it was like 24 hours and she died like she effectively she never came out of that catatonic state that she went into in the van they brought her into the caswell clinic for a little while then brought her to a regular hospital and she just sort of never woke up again.
2: Yeah, it's said that June would later claim that uh, that Jennifer's last words were, of course, to her, and they were, at long last, "We're out," which could mean, you know, that we're out of Broadmoor, or that we are free of the life we've led up until this point, or each other. Uh, yeah, basically, the free of being the Gibbons twins, the silent twins. And the cause of death was determined to be acute myocarditis or inflation, uh, inflammation of the heart. But you don't typically see that in 31-year-olds with no history of cardiac problems. Uh, and there were no unusual, no unexpected drugs or poisons or toxins found in her system. So it was a great mystery to many uh, what actually killed her how did she go from being physically reasonably healthy to dead so quickly and many people just came away with the sense that jennifer had willed herself to die
3: which i totally believe is possible to do for one like i believe it is possible to will yourself to death i think if people can will themselves alive why not um but there's there's a couple of things that like this is (laughs) Tardive dyskinesia is a nervous system thing, problem that never goes away. It can be masked, but never goes away. Jenny is the one who had tardive dyskinesia. It can very easily weaken the heart because if something messes with your brain, it tends to mess with pretty much everything else in your body. So that was one thing that I was just like, this isn't as much of a mystery as it's made out to be, I guess. And maybe, no, I'm not, I'm not a medical doctor, so I may be missing something here but i mean another common antipsychotic and this is why i did actually do some looking to find what they were on but it seems like they were on a number of things but one antipsychotic that was very common then and is still used now it's called clozapine clozaril is a brand name for it it is not to be confused with clonazepine uh which is a benzodiazepine uh Clonopin. It's not that. This is a different drug and it is unfortunate that they have names that are so similar. Uh, clozapine, you have to have blood work every two weeks to make sure you're not tipping over into toxicity, uh, because it can happen. You can be on the same dose, same person for 25 years. And suddenly, I mean, and this happened, um, in a, I used to work in a group home for adults with mental illnesses and it was like a network of homes and so one of the other houses in the network this happened while i was working there uh a guy who had been on the same dose of clozapine but had missed a couple of the blood work sessions uh just died just cardiac arrest died one day with no prior warning sign no family history anything like that he was in pretty good health other than schizophrenia so it's like these sorts of drugs have these long-term serious effects i also don't know if they were ever on lithium lithium is more commonly applied um prescribed to people with bipolar disorder and it works really well until it doesn't and again with lithium more often you see seizures like not targeted dyskinesia but it's again it's one of those drugs where you have to maintain fairly regular contact with the person and they have to have blood work and that kind of thing to make sure that they're not tipping over into toxicity because once you do you can never take it again and that can be a tremendous tragedy for people because sometimes lithium is the only thing that ever helps.
2: That's such a terrible catch-22 situation to have to live in. It's like, yes, I've attained a level of functionality thanks to this medication that could kill me at any moment or leave me with permanent side effects for which there are no cure. It's just like, what? How if you're listening and you're in a situation like that God love you you are exhibiting a strength I cannot even understand
3: i, I it's amazing it is amazing I, I think about the pain that people are uh, must have been in in order for this these medications these side effects to be preferable um and I mean the lithium seizures are no i mean like like I have epilepsy right I've spent time. I was saying before, like at one point I was in Status Epilepticus, which is where you just kind of go into a seizure and you just hang out. You know? St- status
2: epilepticus? is the yeah. worst Harry Potter spell ever.
3: Oh, I was gonna say it's like a punk band. But yeah, same. Um maybe both. And um that it was consider it's considered unusual to do. I did it for five hours. Uh not great, although much harder for my husband than for me because I don't remember any yeah, of it. You were- <laughs> that whole I wasn't there for it, you know. Um, here's a fun fact for you. If you go into an emergency room and you're having a seizure, they give you an intramuscular, an IM shot. So like, like a flu shot or something, not like running an IV line. And in the hospital, it is colloquially, colloquially known as a B52. Um, it is.
2: I can't wait. I can't wait to why.
3: It's 50 milligrams of Benadryl and 2 milligrams of Ativan. Your ass is going to sleep. Yeah, well, you'd think. Um I apparently con- decided no, you know, sleep is for mortals. I'm just going to keep doing this thing. And so I had several several rounds of that before I finally stopped seizing and then I slept for 3 days. So, I mean, I, I don't behave very well. I think it was <laughs> the more you of that are the story. anomaly. And so many ways. <laughs> it's just like I'm I am medically interesting and I don't wish that upon anybody.
2: Yeah, you you really don't. I am um in my second year of a mystery health condition. I've stumped a Johns Hopkins doctor. Mm. I'm not as proud Congratulations. of not as proud of that as I'd like to be, you know? Mm. <laughs> you yeah. Know? When, no, when the it's Johns awful. Hopkins doctor says, Wow, well, we need you need to find like house. I have like, you guys are supposed to be house, but with less drug abuse. <laughs> you,
3: know? Right, you know? I was going to say, you're supposed to be house without the Vicodin. What do you Yeah, I, I, that's why I drove three and a half hours up here. Seriously. It's, ter- I mean, and we can trade bizarre health stories uh, uh, another time, but.
2: They're not, they're not like baseball what, what? cards. I, my deck is full. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
3: right. Oh, God. But so what you, what you, presumably, I'm going to assume that you've experienced, because I have certainly experienced, the more medically interesting you get, the more different types of treatments you try. Now there are side effects and tertiary effects and uh,
2: adverse drug reactions as opposed to unexpected drug reactions. Drugs that you're taking to deal with the side effects from the other drugs. Some drugs you're only taking because of other drugs that you're taking. Emergency drugs on hand uh, you could have a
3: you know uh, um, i mean uh, people who have had toddlers are often familiar with the paradoxical effect of some drugs because benadryl mostly you give someone benadryl and they take a nap yeah. but every once in a while especially in toddlers for reasons we aren't clear about because we don't study them because you really ethically can't um but they get wound up They have a paradoxical effect to these medications. So, like, the moral is we keep using all of these drugs and we don't know what they're doing. And just because you stopped taking a drug a day, a week, or a decade ago doesn't mean it stopped impacting you. And so the fact that Jenny reacted to antipsychotic medication, whatever it was, whether or not it was clozapine, whether it was Heldol, whatever it was... The fact that she reacted worse than June and then at the moment of tremendous stress, arguably the biggest stress that she's had because teenagers are, frankly, clinically stupid. So going into jail, they wouldn't have known just exactly how scary things were about to be. But leaving Broadmoor, change is scary. It's Sometimes positive change is scarier than negative change because hope hurts. And so for her to effectively, effectively slip into a coma and die, like, I don't understand why that's as
2: much of a shock as it is. Because we, because we, you know, we might talk about it poetically, we may have kind of let George Lucas get away with it in one of the prequels, but we're unwilling to accept our emotional self being able to affect our physical self. You know, we, we we don't really want to accept that a person can die of a broken heart, that they could will themselves to die or just lose the will to live. You know, anyone who's had a an older person in their life, you know, lose their, their spouse of 50 years and see them go downhill very rapidly thereafter, you know, knows that, yeah, you can die of a broken heart. You you can lose the will to live and then the whole body just breaks down.
3: It does. It, it, I mean, one of the most common... I don't know if it's been studied, but one of the most common sort of urban legends. But I think it's more scientific than the full moon, which totally has an impact. I've worked in the emergency room. I will die on that hill. (laughs) But more scientific than that is the number of people who die right after they turn a 100 years old. And it's because we set a goal. And sometimes when you reach that goal, you're like, Cool, let's set another one. And other times you reach that goal and yeah, you're like I'm done. I'm done. Okay, that, was... that took that took all I got.
2: Do you have any idea how long that took? It literally took a hundred years. <laughs> what do you want from me? <laughs> oh my god. It's true. I mean,
3: it took a century. And so that's another thing. It's like first of all, we messed with her with drugs. I'm sure it wasn't as well documented as it should have been. Plus there's a lot of illicit drug use in Hospitals and prison settings, uh, including in the, in the eighties, probably more so in the eighties than there is now, uh, just because security measures are, are tighter now than they used to be. So first of all, we messed with her with drugs. Then we put her through this tremendous stress of change, but also she just attained the thing that she'd been waiting for. She just got out. I can't believe we're out. She may not have had anything left.
2: And part of it also could have been. the fear of going into a whole other world yes they were you know just changing facilities and going to be near their parents but they spent a third of their life institutionalized you know not able to leave that building having everything about their life controlled to be shifted out of that could be devastatingly frightening
3: Uh, yeah i mean and if i'm Correct in my memory that June was sort of the alpha twin. Uh, she might have had just that tiny sliver of extra cojones uh, reserves of some way to be able to cope with the stress or to ride through where Jenny was just like, I can't. I'm, I'm done. I cannot.
2: Did you ever see the movie The Reader? No. Okay. I don't want to spoil it then, but conjecture, it's already kind of spoiled for you. But oh, definitely watch it. Kate Winslet, it's... It's amazing. I'm not going to say anything else about it, except that if you make it through the end of that movie without crying, you're not human. Okay. And I'm saying this is someone who can't stand crying. Fair. Okay. And who who married someone who's actually very free and open with his emotions. The second husband is. The first husband, I'm not sure he had any, except for schadenfreude. Is that an emotion? That's one of my favorites. Because he had that. Oh, he had that in spades. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just <laughs> like the concept of schadenfreude. Like, I like saying it, yeah. you know, yeah. Uh, I mean... The, the Germans have all the words that we need. Like, the, the yeah. weight you gained because you were, dep- you know, eating because you were depressed is Kummerspeck, It's grief bacon. And uh, people like the pharma bro have Gesicht. a face in need of a fist. Oh, my God. So, say what you want about my grandfather's people, but their language has a nuance the rest of us are lacking.
3: Oh, I love I love the German. I, I, I actually, uh, a dear friend of mine, Vesna, uh, I don't know if she listens or not, but shout out. Um, she is fluent in, I don't know, three or four or maybe a dozen languages, like way more than I am. And her family um, is Serbian. And so... The, you know, for Eastern European languages and German is one of the languages that she is familiar with, but also Serbian. And I realized quite a while ago that there's a word that I need that apparently doesn't exactly translate even into Serbian and German. And so I'm still waiting. And that is I need a way to say I don't give a fuck.
2: Oh, I'm fair. I'm fairly certain every language in every culture has an equivalent
3: well but without saying don't give a fuck like i want a single word that is the combination oh you
2: want you want one of, word so you, you okay you need a polyphonic language something well because it's, it's you need the kind of language where they they uh, you know an entire concept could be one word because you've just stitched lots of bits of words well that, that's
3: why i was thinking german because yeah. german does a lot of that and that's yeah. that's very useful and i think very practical um because it's, it's more than ennui, and it's not necessarily anger, but it's not quitting. It's just, I, I don't
2: give a fuck. This, this is the field in which I grow my fucks. Behold and see that it is, is barren. barren. Yes, yes, we speak the <laughs> <his> same language. <laughs> see, so I'm saying it needs a, uh, we. Our language is factoids and obscure medical knowledge and memes, apparently, which is a, a nice spread. It works. <laughs> it absolutely works. Um,
3: So, Jenny died.
2: That was an abrupt shift in tone. I just want to call that out.
3: I do that. Yeah. Okay. But so, but, but talking about, like, strange wording, this wasn't a word, it was wording, that June's sort of first public statement was very MLK Jr., in tone of, I'm free at last. I'm liberated, and at last Jennifer has given up her life for me. I don't know how to define that emotion. The the, the emotion
2: you think she was feeling, or well, uh, uh, how, how or a person it, would at least, react to at that? least
3: expressing like what is the, like. It seems to be more gleeful than one might expect.
2: A, a little, maybe too okay with the situation,
3: which is another word. I don't have a word for another, you know, being too okay with the situation.
2: Yeah. Well, we have expectations we put on other people, uh, especially when it comes to mourning. Like we have a real set view in our head, how we expect other people to react to the, to the death of someone uh, close to them. A friend of mine lost her mother after a long illness and time in hospice. Year years of deterioration with uh, Alzheimer's, and you, it's said that the mourning begins with the illness. Yeah, and so that you can, as as my my mother did with her mother, her mother died slowly of cancer. You can feel relief that can be the first and primary thing that you feel, and it doesn't mean you're not mourning. It doesn't mean you're not sad. It doesn't mean you don't love the person. So one of the first things I told my friend when we went, you know made a casserole naturally i'm jewish and and took it over there i can't show up without food um was don't you know it's okay if you don't feel as sad as you think people think you should feel which it was not my business to tell her we're not close friends um but you know she it was not my business to opine on her emotional state but i'm glad that i did because she felt so relieved because she felt like she should be feeling and looking sadder
3: well, I think it's always okay to let people know however their feeling is valid. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, And yet, again, here's a woman who spent 30 years in what was being labeled as selective mutism, maybe trauma, maybe anxiety, maybe she actually was psychotic, I don't know. But the fact that words were such a problem for her for such a long time, and then she makes a public statement, and she makes one that... It feels too okay. Yeah. You know, Cause yes, we do, we all do grieve differently to a degree. Although that's a trope that is less like there is, there's a reason that the Kubler Ross stages of grief exists. Do you know what that is? Actually, do you know who that was written for? I don't,
2: I don't know why it was created. I think, I mean, is that, there's those five stages of grief that you kind of, you kind of hear on all the TV shows and denial, bargaining, and acceptance,
3: anger, and... depression, and then acceptance. Yeah. First of all, they're not meant to be chronological stages, like you move from one to the next, but then you might backslide or you might skip one altogether. But also, they were written not for people who were grieving the death of someone. They were written for people who have a terminal diagnosis. This is the stages a typical person who receives a terminal diagnosis works through as they prepare to die, which is real different than how it's used.
2: Yeah, I I that's the first mention I've heard of its actual origin because it's a very it's uh been subsumed by pop psychology.
3: Yeah. And I mean a lot of psychologists don't know like because everybody quotes on death and dying which is uh, Kubler Ross's original work on the topic, but they don't actually, you know, read it. Yeah. I mean, which is I guess one way of saying they're all potentially podcasters, I don't know. <laughs> um so June's fine now. Like, as fine as one can be who spent the first 30, 30 years of her life profoundly fucked up. Like, she's living independently. She's not, as far as I understand, under any psychiatric care at all. She's living apart from her family, uh, altogether. You know, so when I say living independently, I mean both independent of the state, but also independent of the, of her parents.
2: Yeah. And one thing I find int- I find interesting about her her life uh after Jennifer was that she stopped writing. And she was quoted as saying in an interview, I don't see the point of writing books now. I can communicate by talking now, can't I? Which I think casts it gives you a real glimpse into you know years 1 through 19.
3: Yeah. Yeah, so the I mean these I look at at this story, as just like I, as we said at the outset, like such such a breakdown of the system, like this is what it looks like when the system breaks down. These girls, these babies, and leading into children and then adolescents and young women, one of them died at 29, avoidably. They obviously had creative minds. They obviously had a way with words. And we as a culture, only know about these twins that didn't talk like what a tragedy
2: yeah they're just a, they're in just an oddity to us but what they actually are are they're victims who needed help and didn't get it and what they did get made them worse and i don't know if it was a system breaking down as much as the system was so f- profoundly messed up what? that was the system functioning the way it was built
3: the, the system being broken yeah. 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 No, I, I, exactly. And, and I, you know, there's concepts that I encountered quite, quite often in working in the prison is what's called iatrogenic. I'm going to try and say it again because I didn't say it well. Iatrogenic illnesses, which means an illness that didn't exist, but was created through the course of visual quotes here, treatment. So. People who literally lose their minds in jail or a mental hospital, as well as it's an iatrogenic illness. If you, I don't know, say go to a wound clinic to have your dressing changed and walk out with MRSA. I don't know where yeah. I get that example from exactly. I...
2: <laughs> yeah, nothing, nothing, nothing like that's ever happened before. Nah,
3: uh, so iat
2: iatrogenic
3: iatrogenic.
2: Cool. I learned a new word. There you go.
3: <laughs> I'm kind of proud of that. Um, but the that's, there's so much about this, like, the, the, the concept of trauma is something that, as recently as World War II, we didn't even acknowledge. We just called it shell shock and sent people back to their normal lives and pretended it never happened.
2: And the Patton, like, slapped one of them across the face in, in hospital. You know, it was just, quit being a pussy and get back out there. Yeah. And, and we we kept changing the name of the term, but never treating the term. It went from shell shock to battle fatigue to operational exhaustion to post-traumatic stress. And, you know, somewhere along the line, 50, 60, 80 years in, we decided, oh, we might want to do something about this.
3: Yeah, that, that may be a bad thing that we're doing. And the number of people still who don't understand what PTSD is, because on the one hand, there are are those who feel that it is only reserved for those who have seen active combat, which is incorrect. And on the other hand, you have people who feel that they've worked, say they've worked a, a, a holiday season in retail and they walk out saying, "I'm Yo. stressed." Right? It's stressful, not inherently trauma, though.
2: No, I'm able to rebound from it. You know, with, with two days off in a row, I'm okay. And I, I don't carry it with me. I'm not immediately sent back to that place without warning. Um, you know, so no, it's, I, I should, however, be able to kill every tenth person who says it's not scanning. It must be free. That's <laughs> just, can we as a society agree to that? Because y'all won't stop fucking saying it. I think that's completely reasonable. Yeah. And I don't, not all of them, just every tenth to, I want to decimate them. I want to literally decimate the people who, when the item doesn't immediately scan, say, oh, must be free. Do you think you're the first fucking person to say that to me? Look at how old I am. Okay. I'm not doing this after school. I'm a 40 year old cashier. I've heard this shit before. You're not funny. Sorry. I've just gotten through Thanksgiving working at a wine store. Apparently everybody needs alcohol to be with their family, whether they like their family or they don't. They just need cases of wine.
3: I'm just it, realizing that this may it, be the first year I didn't buy alcohol
2: for Thanksgiving and we didn't have any family. Uh-huh. This, uh, now, again, correlation does not equal causation, but there's a real short line between those two.
3: Yeah, I mean, and when it comes to my family, that line is usually drawn with the middle finger. So absolutely. Yes. <laughs> That's amazing. I yeah I, I I feel like we don't give ourselves enough credit for sort of coexisting and not being assholes and treating those who are already vulnerable with a little extra care. Whether that means and I'm about to compare you to serial killers and criminally insane, but please, the, the, you know, I I would consider those who are working in retail to be another vulnerable population this time of year, like go easy on them.
2: Yeah. And you know, if you have a problem that requires uh, speaking to customer service, or asking for a manager, start with and repeat this, play this back, you know, jump back 15 and listen to it again, practice it with me now. Say, Hi, I have a problem. And I hope that you can help me. Because if you start off yelling at us, we automatically don't like you. And we're not going to fucking help you. But if you walk up with your receipt and say, hi, I have a problem and I hope you can help me. I'm going to bend over backwards to make that shit right for you. So just be just I mean, okay. there's a so
3: I don't think that you are in my Facebook group, but in my Facebook group, we are a varied and irreverent bunch. And there's one rule that that you you have to everyone who joins a Facebook group does so as part of a... This is the the sole step to joining a cult. And that cult is the cult of don't be a dick. Oh, we exactly. Exactly. The rule is right there in the title. Same should apply out in the world. Just don't be a dick. Just, that's yes. like, observe right now. Guess what I just did? I wasn't a dick. I'm going to do it again. I'm doing it See right See what now. I'm saying? It's easier than people seem to think.
2: Yeah, it's actually, here's the crazy thing, it's the default setting. You have to exert effort to be a dick. Think how much more energy you'd have at the end of the day if you weren't exerting your calories being a dick.
1: So let's review. June and Jennifer went through life feeling like no one understood them except their twin. They took the twin connection to the most extreme level, to the point where they both knew that the only way one of them could fully exist was for one of them to cease existing. Didn't you feel better before you knew that? Hello everyone. Let me tell you about the Apple for the Teacher podcast. I'm Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host. So you're probably thinking it's about reading, writing and arithmetic, right? Well, think again. It's a fresh take on true crime, where you wouldn't expect to find true crime in schools. Yes, schools. You will hear tragic stories about murder, abduction, school bus hijack, student disappearance, suicide, kidnap and ransom, a school camp tragedy, the list goes on. So if you're looking for something a little different in the true crime genre, then Apple for the Teacher is for you. So join me as I present the Bad Apples. But until then, remember to be a good apple.